0: All right, our text this morning is uh, 2 Samuel. I'll be saying that uh, quite a few times this fall because we're just following along uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter in this uh, Old Testament historic narrative. And we're focused on uh, the people of God and the God of these people, these people being uh, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people who lived and walked uh, by faith. Uh, They had God's favor uh, on them. And uh, God's love. But he didn't just bless them. He said, I want to bless you that you might be a blessing to the nations. So uh, even we, we enjoy now those promises and blessings because we have been enfolded into uh, that covenant community and those people as well. Uh, God has been merciful to us. And at different times and different turns, the people of Israel had a hard time understanding uh, and submitting to uh, the wisdom of God. The law of God, uh, the the promises and blessings, they they enjoyed them, but then they began to forget God. They were a spiritually forgetful people. We can be a spiritually forgetful people. There's a a particular passage uh, in the book of Judges where uh, Israel's at a a little bit of a a low point, so to speak. And it says at the close of of Judges, there's this refrain. It says, in those days, uh, there was no king in Israel. Okay, Not, not a big deal, I guess, except this. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Eventually, God did bring a king, a king that they wanted, a king that was like the kings of all the other nations. And that did not turn out well with King Saul. And there was a, there was a, a, you know, a plan that God had to, to call forth uh, another king, uh, David. David, that's where we're focused in 2 Samuel, his life. David, as, as we know, and I, re- I reviewed some last week, uh, became a king. He wasn't always a king. Obviously, a season at a young age, he was as probably a teenager anointed to be king under the prophet Samuel. But but he was a, a poet. He was a, a shepherd boy. He was uh, you know he was skilled in many ways. A musician. He was a, a warrior later, and we know uh, of some of his triumphs. Eventually, he does become the king after Saul and Jonathan die. Uh, he, David, was a man who feared God. He, he stood in reverence and awe of his maker and the Lord who loved him. David loved God. David was mighty. David was prosperous. The people of God benefited because David was blessed of God and prosperous. Well, let's just say, unfortunately, David became at different times, and we're getting into that season now in this, par- this portion of 2 Samuel, that he becomes an illustration of what the Bible says is the deceitfulness of riches and the deceitfulness of sin. Je- Jesus uses both those fra- phrases as well. It's not just in Old Testament. We know that there is a, that's the label. It's not just the, the funness of sin, uh, which it, 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 that can be, and I just said that out loud. Uh, sin can be fun. Uh, For a time, Uh, sin, sin can be alluring, sin can be. But but ultimately, sin is deceiving. Riches can be good, but the love of that money will deceive us. So listen, as we read this passage, this is a long passage. um, And uh, and maybe that's all the more reason for us to stand as uh, as we'll hopefully stay alert and follow along with the text. This is intended for us. And as much as it's ancient, uh, I think there's something here that is sobering, soberingly, if that's a word, very relevant and contemporary. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him at all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged uh, Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman, a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, "Uh, is, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, She had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David and Uriah came to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, now go go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went Out of the king's house and there there followed him a a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, along with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why don't you you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, excuse me, Uriah said to David, well, the ark, the, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your sons live, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem uh, that day and the next. And David invited him and ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk and in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with, his, with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it in the hand of Uriah, and the letter he wrote, "Set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die." And Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place he knew where the, the men were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David. Among them fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger. When, he, when all is finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king. Then if the king's anger rises and he says to you. Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech and the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall? So that he died at Thebes?" Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants died and your servant Uriah the Hittite died is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours uh, now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help. You may be seated. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. Uh, would you help us? Would you, would you please help me be in my thinking and my speaking and be in our hearing? Keep us humble, Lord. Even as we consider the failings of someone else, Lord, would you please keep us humble, uh, sober minded, that we might see and love you, our creator, that we might cherish our Redeemer, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Young people, I, I know there used to be a day. It's hard for you to imagine that there was a day that uh, we didn't always have a camera on our, uh, on our person, that we, we weren't able to just say. I, we, we actually used to say, I wish that I had gotten that on camera, Right? And instead, now the question is, who got that on camera, right? And, and things transpire, And you know how the, the electricity rises up and there's things going on? People whip out their phone. I've spent a lot of time over the years, and then that can happen, by the way. It can happen in the schoolyard, on the sports field. It can happen uh, on the dock. I, I've spent a lot of time around the water and boats over the years. One of the reasons I was glad to move when God called us to New England <laughs> Uh, we, I've spent a lot of time around the water. I've also spent a lot of time watching people do stuff around the water, and they say things like this. It's the proverbial famous last words. I think this will hold me, no problem. <laughs> I, I've done this a thousand times, and, and, and you can too. Just just do it. It'll be great. I, hey, watch this. There's the, oh, of course, there's always the, hey, watch this. Hold my beer. Uh, There's a lot of people who do things, jumping off of things, and some of them have some liquid courage in them. Everyone at that point is getting out their phone to film, and I'm usually the guy that does not get out his phone. I just start thinking to myself, this is not going to end well. I start surveying the scene. I can remember uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, David and I had an opportunity with one of my uh, hunting buddies uh, to go out and check his lobster pots. So we took we took a ride out, probably about a mile out in the ocean off the uh, the coast of Situate, and, uh, and we had done that. I'd done this before. It was David's first time, and it was a hot, muggy day, and and we had a, we had a great time. We caught dinner, and uh, and uh, and Ricky, you were supposed to go with us. Sorry, you missed that. But uh, but we ate the lobster. We had a great time. We were out. There. It was kind of hot, and so we said, you know what? Let's go for a swim. And uh, it's just kind of fun to swim in the middle of an open, you know, you're a mile off the coast. And David and I jumped off the boat, had a good, had a good swim. It was brief. You know, you don't want to get too far away from a boat because at that far uh, distance without the boat, uh, you're not making it home alive. Right? True. Well, I, I highlight that to say um, we one day were in Hummer Rock, and I remember watching a guy. Uh, do something. I'll come back to that story uh, in, in a second. But it made me think also of a, a guy on, in, uh, in Hummerrock who jumped off a bridge and he almost crashed through the bow of another boat trying to do a backflip and impressing a bunch of people. Thank heavens he didn't. Sometimes those things happen so fast, but at other times it's excruciating because you watch it happen so slow. It's like in slow motion when you, you, you see it's like two trains that are on the same track and they're heading in the same direction. You're like this is not going to end well. It's spiraling down. This passage is one of those places where it slows down. There's layers, there's progression, there is turning points and it's spiraling down. And it's, it's not sensational and it's not comical. It's just a, a passage. It's a story. It's an account that really happened. And it's really sad. It's very sad. It's not that a, 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 you know, a man's legs got broken or a boat bow got cracked open. It's that family got broken. David's life began to fall apart after this too. Spiraling down. Broken nation. A divided nation. That's where we're going to find Israel in many respects. But let's just revisit the narrative briefly under the headings of these three questions. What happened here? How can this kind of thing happen and then my last question, uh, I have it listed in the order there too, is who cares what happened here? One of the things uh, to note, really about the text, even as the, the writer and the narrator composes it for us is in, in just the composition of, the, of, of, the, of where he wrote it and how, is that there's, it's just very plain in one sense. There's, there's a slower pace here than previous chapters. There's very little dialogue that actually happens between people. There's no editorial comments about feelings or, or even the ethical elements or morality of that. There, there, there are just plain details and circumstantial facts that are here. As one commentator put it, the writer relates this whole sordid tale of lust and sex and deceit and murder without pausing to make even a marginal moral notation along the way. He details every step of the story as if God was nowhere involved and David was in control. Clearly, the writer left some things out. That's by design. It, I mean, even for instance, it's a sad thing, but even Bathsheba here, we, we have no grounds to think that she or to speculate about her participation in this. David's the one that has the force, the power, the wealth, the influence, we don't know. There's only three words that she actually utters. In English, it's actually, in Hebrew, only two words. And the message is, I'm pregnant. I do appreciate that the writer says in verse 3 that she is the wife of Uriah and the daughter. She's, a, she's, she's married to someone. And she's someone's daughter, which is true of Everyone someone 's son or daughter, but what happened here is a devastating culmination of the consequences of sin and and it 's the fountainhead of that that even sounds a weird way of phrasing it, but the source is is so much revolves around deceit, and the father of lies, Satan, probably lied to david david you 've worked so hard david you, you have labored so much, done so much for. Your country and for the Lord. Everything has been uphill. You deserve some R&R. You deserve, David, an opportunity to celebrate your victories. You deserve a break, some rest, maybe even some pleasure. Your conscience is being too picky. She's beautiful. This, is, this can be yours. It won't impact anybody else. Then no one will find out. Does David break God's law? Yeah, on a number of fronts, he does. A few of them. He's coveting, he's stealing, he's obviously committing adultery, he's not naive to these things. But I'll tell you, there's one commandment that he will not, under any circumstance, break. And that's the 11th commandment. Don't you all know the 11th commandment? Thou shalt not get caught. Right? Right? I mean, that's 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 the foundation of my innocence. I, I didn't get caught. I will not get caught. So he hatches a plan, and and unfortunately, it has a a, a backup plan. And a, there's a, there's a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. And so what happened here? It almost feels like the you know this is this is like you know this is like the Sopranos or something. This is bad. To state the obvious, plan A was to arrange for Bathsheba's husband to come home and for him to enjoy some rest and some refreshment. With his wife, verse 8, what does he say to him? You go home. Uh, you, by all means, please. Let me, I'm insisting. I'm the king. Obey me. You need to go home. You need to have supper and a shower and that, that other thing that starts with S. And um, that's, that's yours. Go. Enjoy. But it backfires. Why does it backfire, that plan A? Uh, because of some of the well, one of the many ironies that's actually in this text, and that is Uriah is a good man. Uh, uh, my men are out at the field. My, my men, my men don't have the privilege to do that. I, I don't want to take that. No, that, that's not noble. He's showing good character. And, and really, it's like it's a it's it's a contrast that I think the writer would have us so clearly see. That David's duplicity is contrasted with the integrity of this man who is a Gentile. Again, if this was the beginning of like some kind of, you know, social media video teaser, someone uh, someone who's about to have a really bad accident, this is where you start saying, no, 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 please just stop. Don't do that. But he moves on to plan B. Okay, well, that's not going to work. There's something that does tend to work, and that's called booze. Verse 13. How does that work out? Well, that too backfires, no surprise. Uh, but I mean, essentially, I, I mean I can only venture to guess. He laid down on the couch. The dude didn't end up going home drunk because he passed out on the couch. Plan C. David now has to involve more people. But that probably won't be a problem with, for Joab because Joab's the commander who's been known to be very corrupt and uh, to serve his own purposes at different times. And so he wants to make it look like it's, you know, uh, you know a, a valiant death on the field. And so he just says, listen, go, go, go out there with him, put him in the front, back up, let him take the fall, let him die. Oh, by the way, Let's 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 improve, you know, the optics here. Let's let's have a few other guys fall as well. Right. Because, I mean, you know, a few more casualties. No big deal. Verse 17, verse 24. Some other men died, too. So far, again, what do we say to ourselves? N- n- no, you, you, you don't need to go further. Come clean. Walk, walk in the light. Uh, Make this right. It's not too late, David, to do the right thing. And we're watching it in slow-mo, and we're cringing. And the story that we're going to see in future weeks that unfolds, as I mentioned earlier, in addition to these tragic deaths, is that David's life spirals down. His own family falls apart. A child dies. His, his children rebel against the faith and don't want anything to do with it. Not all suffering in life, I've said this before, it's very much worth repeating, not all suffering in life is tied to our sinful choices. And yes, that is true. And yes, all sin can be forgiven. Hear me, hear God's word. David himself mercifully is forgiven and healed and restored. And we're gonna gonna see that in the following chapter and chapters. But there's so much sorrow and there's so much shrapnel here. What does it tell us? What, what, is it, what, is it, what does it do? Why is this here? Back to my story about being out in the ocean. Just north of where we were is, uh, is another lighthouse uh, 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 there's two lighthouses. Actually, there's the Situate one, which our family loves to go to. And if you drive around the, the, you know, the jetty there at Situate Lighthouse, uh, you come around the corner and what do you see out on the water? The Minot. The, the, the Minot shelf light that's right there. there. There's another lighthouse that's right there. It's, a, it's, it's out by itself in the water. I'm sure that yesterday there were a lot of waves crashing around that thing. I'm sure it was an impressive sight. Some of you went to the ocean yesterday and saw the waves. I'm sure that lighthouse had all kinds of water crashing against it. And it was built at one point, of way back in the mid-1800s, that, that lighthouse was. And, uh, and it just got ripped down, like within, within months. And the two guys who were manning that lighthouse, they died. And so they decided to rebuild this this lighthouse. Sorry, this is going to be a little history lesson, a little Massachusetts Bay Colony history here. So, you know, we got this lighthouse. It's wiped out. Why would they rebuild that lighthouse a mile out in the middle of the ocean? It ended up being one of the most expensive construction projects on a lighthouse in United States history. It's like eight. Why? Because one guy had done the research in just an eight-year period, like 40 vessels had crashed uh, on, the, uh, on those rocks because of the shelf that's there, the shallow water, low tide. You need that lighthouse there to signify, to warn, to help, to protect. In fact, one of the worst uh, incidences, I guess it's what prompted them uh, to start building it in the 1860s, is in 1849 there were some uh, Irish immigrants on a boat called the St. John in 1849 who were uh, coming into, uh, and into Cohasset and, uh, and the ship wrecked. Cold water, mile out. What happened? Ninety-nine men died. So lots of lives, lots of just shy of landing on their their future homeland. The light today obviously is automated. Nobody, nobody needs to operate it. They, it's 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 quite fortified. But the interesting thing about the light that's automated uh, there, and I, I've seen it. I'm guessing many of you have, is that it it has. Three flashes, it's more, but it's in a sequence of one, four flashes, and three flashes. Go check it out for yourself. And it's significant of three words, one letter, four letters, three letters. I love you. It's kind of romantic, I, you know, whatever. It's great. Uh, why do I bring this up? Why, why do I highlight this? Because I really believe that this passage... This tragic, and probably to you maybe, a familiar account and story. Although this week I decided to recount it in the car ride to school with driving kids over to Pembroke High and, and one of the boys in, in the car had never heard this story. King David and Bathsheba didn't know the story. Why is this story here? It is a big, massive lighthouse that says, Warning! Warning, warning, do not crash yourself on the rocks. It will be your ruin. Sin is deadly. I would say that the lighthouse is not just a message of warning, but also a lo- of love. It's a love that God would warn us mercifully to say, I- there's a better way. God says, I love you. Trust me. Find your satisfaction in me. My law, God makes so abundantly clear. Even King David says it himself from his own lips. God's law gives life. It preserves me. It is precious to me. Sin, in contrast, is a plague that leads to pain and loss and grief and death. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. I've been familiar with it in my own sin and failure. You entertain patterns of, and habits of sin. Some of you today might be even walking in the consequences of those. And I, and I honestly, I, I almost hate to bring it up because I don't want anyone who find themselves caught in sin to feel condemned. But some of you may be on the brink or, or, or right in the precipice, you know, the edge of a foolish decision. And, and by the way, this is not just about lust and, and, the, and the, the, the strong power of erotic passion, which is very strong. But it could be any number of sins that we are entertaining, feeding, flirting with. As one commentator uh, from the UK, Heath Thomas writes, it might be an adulterous affair, it might be pornography, it might be cheating in school or dishonest business practices or maybe a grudge that you've been nursing that is consuming your heart. Whatever it is, you need to know that sin's whispers that promise joy are lies that in the end are a road that leads to disaster. As John Owen, old school Puritan, used to write, be killing sin or it will be killing you. 1 Corinthians, but if is it is, but if but if it is sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality of all forms. Flee, run. Don't, don't linger, don't look, don't second look, don't flee, run. Don't justify. And when you do, don't just say, oh, I'm gonna run from that, run from that, run from that, run from that, run from that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to go there. Well, if you spend your whole day saying, I'm not going to think about sin. I'm not going to think about sin. I'm not going to think about sin. What are you thinking about? (laughs) So I'm telling you, and I'm telling me as even I say this, we have to run from something and we have to run to something. We need to run to the goodness of God. We need to run to the gifts that God has given and enjoy them to the glory of God. And in this case, it could have been, it should have been, it, it should have been David's own wife. If you doubt that that's worth doing, I'm not talking about just running towards the gifts. I'm talking about running toward the gift giver. That It's too bad. It's too much. He can't forgive me. It's, 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 it's too bad. Well, that might be true of people in your life, but it's not true of God. And if you doubt that, I encourage you to go read Luke 15 because there are three parables there. Lost sheep, lost coin, and a lost son. And the lost son is a prodigal. And he, he squanders it all away and he, he obeys all of his desires. He feels something. He craves something. He just feeds it and he goes after it. And then he is empty and he's broken and he's, he's, he's sorrowful. Tim Keller says it so well. I was in a class listening to him preach. He said, brothers, uh, sisters, if you break God's law, it will break you. But the grace of the law of God, he said, it, it points us to the message of the prodigal son, which has come home and the father is ready with open arms to forgive, to restore. More could be said, but in the interest of time, let's move on to this second thing. How can this happen? I mean, I'm sure there are people in the nation of Israel that were were, were bewildered and puzzled when they learned of this. And of course they did. Uh, you, You know, this is very public. Yes, the opening verse is obviously an indicator of how this happened. What does the opening verse say? All the other kings were at war and David was where? In Jerusalem. he was. Maybe it was okay that he sent Joab out. But his mindset's not there. He he is not focused on the battle. He's uh, he's relaxing. David is disengaged from the mission and his mind is in the wrong place. You say, how could this happen? Well, David let his guard down. David, David fell asleep. Where do you fall asleep? Do you fall asleep? uh, You know, uh, in, in, in freezing cold rain? Do you fall asleep? On a boat that's you know rocking up and down the middle of the water? Or do you fall asleep in a warm hammock? Some of you are like, I just want to find a good place. I, I have a hard time sleeping in general. But you get my point, right? There, there's he's fallen asleep because he's in the wrong place. He's not alert, awake, aware. David was blessed. He was blessed by God. He was feeling comfortable, but not grateful for what he had. Again, nothing wrong with, with, with sexual pleasure whatsoever. A gift from God. But God gets to define the context that that gift is enjoyed. And David should have been with his wife, not another man's. How did this happen? Well, it wasn't the first look. He saw that she was beautiful. But that's where it is. It's in that second look. Well, how did this happen? Well, you could say it's the first look, but really it's actually, there are things going on in David's life that was preceding this. Assumptions, pride. Uh, there, there, there was already, he was already playing around and messing with this whole realm of, 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 of his, his flesh and women. As I mentioned earlier, the fountainhead of this was deceit, the father of lies, the enemy, Satan. Every sin, though, just to be very clear, is an inside job. Let me say that again. Every sin is an inside job. And so we can't go and say, like Tom Sawyer, uh, you know, uh, Aunt Polly, the devil made me do it. And neither can we say, you know what, God's not good. I I had no other choice. I've got my needs. I've got my struggles. I needed a coping mechanism. I had no other choice. I took matters into my own hands and my own needs, and and, and it's going to be okay. What unfolds here is a trajectory of tragedy. And it's illustrated, excuse me, it is an illustration of what we read in the New Testament in James chapter 1. Blessed is the man, this is James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And, And I might add to that, who remains steadfast under blessing. Which is not what David was able to do here. Okay, does that make sense? So, blessed is the man who's steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. And get this, hear the progression. Hear, hear the anatomy of sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire... Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This can happen. This can happen to to normal people. Everyday people. Sure, David was powerful, persuasive, handsome, you know, warrior, poet, whatever. This happens to the nerdy people. Okay, okay. this is God's king. That's, that's maybe another way we're really looking at how does this happen? This is a man who loved God. This is a man who has a track record of doing the right thing. This is a man who has persevered in the face of many trials and temptations and has honored God and honored people, served God and served people. After all these years, now he falls. Why? Why? We don't exactly know. But we do know there's a reason that the Lord Jesus, when he was asked, help us to pray. He told the disciples what? Pray like this. And there's a phrase in there. and We're going to say it all together in a second. And lead us not into temptation. temptation. Many years ago, when I was in my 20s, I I remember... uh, I befriended a guy named uh, Oki, and uh, he was, I mean, he is probably, uh, you know, 20 years ahead of me, and at that time, he was like, I was in my 20s, he was like in his 40s or 50s, and I used to think that I was so old, <laughs> you know, and, and here I am, you know, and I remember asking, I said, Brother Oki, we was a group of young college men, we said, does it get easier, you know, does temptation and sin, you know, like, does that all like just go down after you get older, and, you know, it just diminishes, and he said, no. And and and, uh, and some of you gray-haired people are saying no, and, and uh, I'm with you. And I, and, I, and I remember kind of being a little bit discouraged. Well, I talked to Oki this week on the phone. He's down in South Carolina, and we were talking over this text. In fact, he's, he had some great insights and, and wisdom as we just reflected on this in life, in our own personal struggles. Oki reminded me that the greatest of saints can be the guiltiest of the greatest of sins. It's true of Peter. Remember it's true, in the, it's, it's true in the New Testament. Peter denies the Lord how many times? Three times. We see it. When Christian leaders crash. We're surprised. We're devastated. But maybe we should not have put them on a pedestal in the first place. Doesn't remove any of their culpability. But maybe speaks to our disappointment. We should never be surprised by sin in us or in other people. I don't mean that in a judgmental way at all. We, we should be looking away from ourselves, not at others or ourselves. Oki okay, reminded me, don't attempt to try to find in others what God ultimately intends for us to find in Christ. We, we, see, we see failure like this and we should be reminding ourselves of the frailty of our humanity and our utter dependence upon God. Plain and simple. So who cares? Who cares? In many ways, in our current cultural context, uh, really no one. Uh, very few. It's, I mean, obviously we care about the abuse and the power and, the, and, and this tragic death. But as far as passion and feelings and impulses, you do you. It's just a private affair. It's no one's business but your own. No one else is going to get hurt. Who cares what God says about these matters? David, though, doesn't want to celebrate that in public. He wants to do it in private. He wants to cover it. He wants to try to cover it. And he even thinks, I'm sure, at some point, okay, okay, We got plan C executed. This is all going to work out. Not pretty, but it's over. And no, I would say tragically he's uncovered, but it's not tragedy. It's actually the mercy. It's the mercy of God. And we're going to read about it in the next chapter because God comes and pursues him. But also there's another tragic irony here. And it's in verse four because it says that Bathsheba, before she goes back to her house, it makes reference to the fact that she goes and she cleanses herself. And this is a reference to Old Testament ceremonial law. And she goes through the external rituals. So that's a religious person's approach to it, right? And that's just the, it's an illustration of how moralism and legalism d- does not work. It will fool you, in fact, into thinking that when Bathsheba does this, you know, external washing, hey, we're, you know... We're okay, right? Well, this will compensate. This will offset things, and the legalists will say things like, "Hey, you know, I'm going to cover this up. Hey, you know, what I do sometimes. You think about it this way. Hey, you know, what I do on Saturday night, it can be remedied or rectified with some religious duties on Sunday morning. God, God doesn't care. I'll clean this up. I, I, I'll get it all even. I mean, really, who, who, who cares? Well, back to my uh, original comment about the narrator and the writer does not include a whole lot of details. There's no commentary. Well, technically, verse 1, David wasn't at war like the other kings. But really, the commentary here is so clear. The one phrase, just one little takeaway that is included in verse 27 of the text. So look at it, if you would, at the very, very close, the latter part of verse 27. But the thing that David had done Displeased the Lord. So God, throughout this passage, is silent. But it does not mean that he is absent. God does care. And he will bring truth to light and justice to bear. And in the next chapter, as I said, God will pursue Even God will make his wrath known, and the irony will be it will come out of David's own mouth. Read for yourself. But God, thanks be to God, he doesn't just sweep David away and crush him. And he is merciful to David, but not for the sake of, of honoring David, but for God to show off God's mercy. God's compassion and God's immense ability to change people, to change minds, to change hearts. That is our hope. Folks, our hope is not in ourselves or other people. I've heard Grace Ferser say this a ton of times. She's quoting somebody else, I think, but the best of men are men at best. best of men are men at best save one our, our hope is not in our our, our willpower or or craftiness or the, the the clever ways that we justify or cover or or compensate or work this all out it's it, it's not in people that, the people that that deeply disappoint us. Our, Our hope is in the one. The one who, as Hebrews so clearly says, endured every temptation that we have. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What we need is help, so we're going to pray and then we're going to come to this table to find strength, to remember. Pray with me. Father, we do look to you and ask that you would be glorified in us, through us, by the working of your, your, your power. Lord, I pray that you would Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I pray that you would send your spirit to, to do work in our hearts and minds and priorities and decisions. I pray that you would give us boldness and courage, not not to criticize and attack other people and judge them, but to look at ourselves in the mirror and take inventory and be sober-minded and humble and mindful and grateful and, and cry out to you for forgiveness and help. And thank you for the ways that you've preserved us with your angels and your promises, your warnings, through the prayers of other people, through your common grace. Lord, you've restrained us. We, we would have run into the rocks a long time ago. Thank you. There's a lighthouse that doesn't just warn us, but invites us to consider your love. Lord, give us contentment, please. It's so, it can be so elusive. But we can be so ripe for temptation in our disgruntled state, our our unappreciative state. We we can be deceived. We deceive ourselves. Help us to be a people who walk in the truth of your light, that we tell the truth to others. That when we're confronted, we tell the truth, that we don't lie to ourselves and we don't let the enemy. I pray against the enemies of the flesh, the world and the devil. I pray that his voice is subtle ways we would not be leaning into, but we would be running towards the arms and the hope of our Savior. Be with those who are struggling, Lord, struggling with work, with relationships, people who need rest and restoration, people who need healing, people in our community who are trying to battle addiction, people that are trying to rebuild because of natural disaster, people that we see in in the news and other parts of the country. Lord, we pray again today for the persecuted church, people in other countries and places that have to bear up under the weight of, of, of great intensity. People are meeting in house churches this very day and other parts of the world for fear. Cause them to persevere, grant them boldness. Grant us all boldness to live for you and to fight sin with your help and with humility. In Christ's good name we pray. Even now, as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.